too. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of the latest news about research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you will hear about all of that. First, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years of practice in psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome back again, folks. Uh, this show that you're listening to is pre-recorded, but it will air first on Wednesday evening, February 19th at 7 p.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. I know a lot of you are playing back this as a podcast, either on that website or from the podcast that you downloaded from iTunes. Thank you so much to all the folks who download the podcast there. Appreciate your support. And as always, I would like very much to hear from those of you who are regular listeners. If you have any questions or comments about anything that I've discussed on the show, or if there's someone who has a mental health-related concern or question, maybe you have a problem with how you feel and you've tried to get help and it hasn't worked well, or you're not sure how to get help, or maybe there's someone close to you who has a problem and has tried to get help, hasn't gone well, or they're not getting the help they need. Let me be a resource for you. I may be able to give you some useful suggestions, get you pointed in the right direction. And for any of you who want to send me any comments or questions or feedback at all, the email address for all of that to contact me is Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. And let me reassure you that all information will be kept strictly confidential. Nothing that's potentially identifying uh, would ever be mentioned on the air. Let's get started on tonight's show with a very interesting article, a provocative idea. Is it possible that infections could be the cause of memory impairment in older adults? Now, exposure to several types of common infections, it turns out, could be associated with memory problems, according to a new study. However, it's very preliminary, and obviously more work needs to be done before definite conclusions can be drawn. Nonetheless, the findings of this research suggest there may be an association with memory decline and exposure to some bacteria and viruses, although the study authors admit they have not proven this. What they did was they looked at brain function tests on almost 600 older adults 
to assess memory and thinking ability. And then they also looked for evidence of exposure to certain bacteria and viruses. Now, one of the, the bacteria they looked at were called C. pneumoniae and H. pylori. You might recognize H. pylori as being found to be the culprit in uh, gastric ulcers. Uh, now, it's been quite some time since it's become this accepted, established scientific fact that that bacteria is a main culprit in the development of ulcers, but when the idea was first proposed, it was thought to be uh, at least heresy, at worst, a bogus crackpot idea. Uh, so the idea that infections could cause gastric ulcers seemed extremely radical in the beginning, later found to be established fact and become the standard of care for ulcers to treat that bacteria. And so now the idea, uh, could infections play a role in memory decline, doesn't quite seem as radical, but again, it does need more hard proof. And the other viruses that they looked at are fairly common viruses in the environment, cytomegalovirus and herpes simplex viruses 1 and 2. C. pneumoniae can lead to pneumonia and bronchitis. Herpes viruses cause very commonly experienced cold sores, other conditions, of course, genital herpes. Now, exposure to these bacteria or viruses doesn't necessarily mean a person became ill from it. Someone with an intact immune system usually fights off these infections without too much trouble. Someone with a very seriously compromised immune system, however, can become gravely ill. For example, someone with AIDS uh, is subject to very, very serious infections with cytomegalovirus. Now, infection may be a little bit of a strong term in terms of what the researchers were looking at in these subjects. They measured exposure to these bacteria and viruses based on having antibodies in the blood, but it doesn't mean a person actually became ill. Many people are exposed to H. pylori and never get an ulcer. It's just like being exposed to a common cold virus. You may or may not become symptomatic. About half of the study participants whose average age was 71, returned five years later for additional tests of mental ability. Blood tests showing increased antibody levels to these viruses and bacteria were associated with worse mental performance, including poor executive function and language performance. My first reaction to, looking, to reading that result was, Okay, I mean, it was five years later. Um, did they account for the age difference? Now, uh, the researchers said they previously found in other studies that people with greater infectious burden had a higher risk of stroke and were more likely to have carotid plaque. This is uh, plaque in the main arteries in the neck that supply blood to the brain. This occurs when fatty substances build up and narrow the carotid arteries, and uh, that can, of course, cause strokes. They looked at detailed mental function testing 
both uh, at the beginning and then also in a subgroup who were followed up five years later. And they said they took into account and adjusted their results for very important factors, including age, like I mentioned, also level of education, socioeconomic status, and the presence or absence of high blood pressure, which, of course, is a factor for stroke and dementia and cognitive decline. Now, the study doesn't explain why there is this association to exposure to these infectious pathogens and worsening cognitive function. And it's too soon to suggest how it is that people who have been exposed to these common infections may be at risk for mental decline and or stroke. Uh, again, there's no proof of causation. And most importantly, in case you were thinking about uh, some things you might try to do or ask your doctor about, there is no evidence yet that treating these infections will help. So no need to run out, see if you have antibodies in your blood against any of these bugs, and then asking for treatment for them. Again, most people with a normal, healthy, intact immune system uh, who've just been exposed to them in the environment will have some level of antibodies. A variety of infections and inflammatory conditions have been associated with stroke and other vascular diseases, as well as mental impairment. There's a big overlap between risk factors for vascular disease and stroke and Alzheimer's disease and cognitive issues. But right now, people can't do a lot about it. Uh, we already know what you can do to preserve mental functioning. Uh, don't smoke, keep your blood pressure and blood sugar normal, get plenty of exercise, eat right, be socially active, be mentally and intellectually active. But right now, as of yet, while this initial research is intriguing, we cannot yet say, all right, better check the blood for these antibodies to these bugs. Certainly, as uh, more work is done in this area and articles are written about it, I'll be sure to bring you more information. But very intriguing preliminary idea uh, certainly would be an exciting development uh, if it could be found that somehow or another administering treatment that would affect uh, these pathogens could uh, alleviate decline in memory. For, na for right now, that's way too big a leap. All right, next up, let's go to another interesting mental health-related item that came up in the news this past week, the idea that quitting smoking was linked to better mental health in a study. Uh, it isn't just that quitting smoking is much healthier for your heart and lungs, and your body in general, uh, but that quitting smoking actually led to improved mental health compared to when the person was still smoking. And therefore, the new study suggests it may be as good for your mental health to quit as it is for your physical health. Researchers analyzed data from 4,800 daily smokers in the United States who took part in two surveys conducted three years apart. Those who had an addiction or other mental health problems in the first survey were less likely to have those issues in the second survey if they quit smoking. 
The first survey found that 40% of the participants had some sort of mood or anxiety disorder or a history of these conditions, 50% had alcohol problems, and 24% had drug problems. Those are large uh, portions of these uh, study populations. And then the second survey showed that 29% of those who quit smoking had mood disorders, much less than the 40 originally, 42% of those who still smoked, right? And then alcohol problems were reported by 18% of quitters and 28% of ongoing smokers. Drug problems affected 5% of quitters versus 16% of those who still smoked. So you see big improvements in mental health problems and alcohol and drug problems after quitting smoking. Let's continue to take a look at this after our first commercial break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the show where you get all the latest mental health-related news with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott. And we're talking about research that showed quitting smoking benefits mental health as well as physical health. People who quit smoking were less apt to have problems such as mood or anxiety disorders or alcohol or drug problems. Now, the study findings were released online on February the 11th in the journal Psychological Medicine. When treating patients with mental health disorders, doctors may overlook their patient's smoking habit in the belief that it's best to deal with the psychiatric issues first. Clinicians tend to treat the depression 
alcohol dependence or drug problem first and allow patients to continue to smoke, sort of letting them self-medicate with cigarettes if necessary. The assumption is that psychiatric problems are more challenging to treat and that quitting smoking may interfere with treatment. However, these findings suggest a strong link between quitting smoking and improved mental health. While the researchers found an association between the two, the study didn't prove a cause and effect relationship. When a patient is ready to focus on other mental health issues, it may be an ideal time to address smoking cessation as well, according to study authors. And therefore, their point is, look, when you get people to quit smoking, their mental health problems improve. So why only focus on treating the mental health problems, letting them puff away as much as they want? Why not concentrate on trying them to get away from the smoking at the same time? Well, I get the point of the study and the results are pretty interesting. Uh, but I have to say that I'm guilty as a psychiatrist of what they're talking about in terms of saying, well, you know what? Uh, I think we'll prioritize treating your mental health problems, your anxiety, your depression, your bipolar disorder, or whatever it may be, uh, or your substance abuse problem. Let's treat your alcohol and drug problem, and let's tackle the smoking once the other issues have been taken care of because it's too difficult to do all of that at once. And uh, again, while I find the results of this study interesting, I have to admit I'm not quite sure that I'm ready to change my approach, and uh, I'll tell you why. Most patients who are smokers will tell me, you know what, um, I don't, I'm really not interested and motivated to quit right now. Ultimately, yes, I do want to quit, and I would love to, but right now, while I'm going through this, uh, problem with anxiety or problem with depression, unstable bipolar disorder, trying to stop drinking, trying to stop using drugs. Most of them will tell me, I, I don't want to also try to quit smoking right now. It's too much. And it's a rare person who will say, you know what? Uh, I want to fix this problem and I want to quit smoking. I want to do all of it. Um, if someone is that highly motivated to tackle all those issues at once, great. Then, of course, as a, as a clinician, I would say, yes, let's do that. But again, that type of uh, – that, that patient attitude is the exception, not the rule. So most of the time, I'll help a patient get well in, in the other respects. And then once they're feeling more stable, tacking, tackle uh, quitting smoking. Now, why is that? Well, let me just explain some of the side effects of quitting smoking, even when it's going very well, going very smoothly. Quitting smoking can cause anxiety, depression, insomnia, irritability, poor concentration, and of course the thing people dread the most, weight gain. And with all that potentially going on, when someone is also trying to recover from an anxiety disorder, from a mood disorder, or substance abuse disorder other than the nicotine, you know, I think that may be a bit too much. Um, now, again, I'm certainly a, 
not saying I'm closed-minded in my own approach, but uh, I believe when it comes to helping a patient quit smoking, while I always encourage my patients who are smokers to quit, uh, the fact remains that the person has to be ready for it and they have to be highly motivated to quit or else it just isn't going to happen. And uh, that's simply the reality. And it doesn't matter what method of smoking cessation you're talking about. It can be cold turkey, the gum, the patch, uh, Chantix, Welbutrin, what have you, uh, hypnosis, smoke enders, anything. Uh, no matter what, the patient has to say to themselves, I am ready to quit, I want to quit, I am done, I have to quit. And so if they are willing to do that while also being treated for an acute mood or anxiety or substance abuse disorder, great. Uh, but at least in my experience, that is seldom the case. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a stress in the workplace update. Uh, a study shows that meditation might reduce workplace stress. Just taking that title uh, of the article, hardly a revelation. It's well known that meditation will reduce stress in general. Uh, so no surprise that it would apply to workplace stress. But nonetheless, it's certainly important and relevant. And so let's uh, take a look at what happened here, that regular doses of meditation might prevent work-related stress and burnout, a small study done here in the United States. Teachers and support staff working at a school for children with behavior problems felt less stressed after practicing 20 minutes of Transcendental Meditation, or TM, twice a day for four months. But participants reported feeling less stressed and more energetic within a few days. Now, this study isn't just looking at mindfulness meditation, which has been getting a lot of uh, attention and media coverage lately. They're specifically looking at Transcendental Meditation, TM, uh, somewhat uh, reminiscent of uh, the uh, practitioners of that method, including the originators of it from India, kind of timely with the 50th anniversary of the Beatles landing here at uh, the United States and appearing on the Ed Sullivan Show February 9th, 64. Uh, you recall George was uh, uh, very much into TM, but I digress. Let's see what this study found the starting stress levels among the participants had averaged 39 on a 40-point scale uh, measuring stress. They fell by at least five points toward the end of the study. The 20 school staffers who didn't meditate started with stress levels about 37 on the same scale, not substantially different than 39, but their stress rose two points on that scale during the same period. So there's a swing of seven points, which doesn't sound like a lot, but as these scales go, that is a pretty big difference. The ones who meditated also felt less depressed and less emotionally exhausted. So there's their point about preventing burnout. The meditation seemed to have the strongest effect on stress levels, uh, and this report was published in the Permanente Journal, 
Researchers didn't describe the techniques taught to participants in the study in detail, but again, TM is a trademarked method of meditation. It generally involves sitting with one's eyes closed for 20 minutes twice a day, thinking about a particular sound or chanting a mantra. Automatic self-transcending techniques such as TM involve the effortless use of a sound without meaning, or the mantra, which allows the mind to settle to quieter levels of thought. There is plenty of research pointing to apparent benefits from various forms of meditation, including the popular mindfulness meditation approach, for conditions ranging from anxiety to pain. Workplace stress, if it could be reduced regularly and reliably in this manner, uh, certainly would be beneficial to employers. Uh, workplace stress has costly side effects in the form of employee turnover. A 2012 study by the Center for American Progress puts the cost of replacing an employee at 10 to 30 percent of that worker's annual salary. Some meditation can be done without leaving your desk. Mindfulness meditation, or retraining the mind's ability to direct their attention, uh, is simply just putting your feet on the floor, paying attention to the weightfulness of your legs or the breath in your body. That can bring the mind back to the present. Meditation is a good way to avoid working on autopilot. Today's 24-7 workplace connectivity requires employees to be mentally present at most times, something that doesn't necessarily come naturally. The workplaces of the future could benefit by having a quiet room for workers to visit for 10 minutes or less. Great idea, great suggestion. Don't suggest you hold your breath that employers will uh, put that in place. Employees who come out of a stressful meeting or situation could then go there and reset their minds so that they don't have to carry that stress with them for the rest of the day. Again, it would be fantastic if workplaces had uh, stress rooms, as it were, or meditation rooms. Uh, but again, um, we'll wait and see what happens. For now, I think uh, it would be probably more likely to encourage them to put exercise facilities um, in their workplaces because if employees were in better condition physically, then that would translate into immediate and tangible benefits for the employers because that would reduce health care costs. And that is certainly uh, the biggest expenditure nowadays for most companies. Now, to be sure, of course, meditation rooms in some level could also uh, help reduce health care costs. People who meditate regularly uh, would more than likely be in better physical health because of the decreased impact of stress on their body. Uh, it's just hard to know if you could get employers to see the tangible benefit of that versus an exercise room. All right, we're going to take another commercial break right here, and when we come back, uh, we're going to have some 
more mental health related news. We're going to focus on some relationship issues since we just had Valentine's Day recently. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you. And once again, the email address for questions or comments or feedback for me is Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. Next up on tonight's show, a few articles about relationship issues. We just had Valentine's Day this past weekend. This article talks about how the, quote, love hormone, unquote, works its magic. Seems like everywhere you turn nowadays, there's more and more articles about oxytocin, the so-called love hormone that seems to promote social affiliativeness, uh, which is a trait um, associated with women as opposed to men. And uh, it's also involved in many other functions, uh, uh, contractions of the uterus, uh, lactation, just to name a couple. It's proposed as a treatment to improve social interactivity for autism. This is a very, very hot hormone nowadays. Let's go over what this particular article is talking about. Now, scientists and women everywhere have long wondered exactly what keeps a man from straying with a stranger. From a biological perspective, at least, cheating is easy to understand. The more sexual partners a man has, the more likely he'll be to pass on his genetic material. So why do so many men settle down, get married, and stick around to raise their kids? Researchers think they may have found a clue in oxytocin, the hormone released during sex, and other intimate gestures like hugging or holding hands, and it's been proven to strengthen social bonds in other mammals. They found that oxytocin appears to boost men's attraction to their mate, 
even when presented with pictures of other women. The findings were published in uh, an issue late last year of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, in the study, 20 men who were in committed relationships for 26 months on average took whiffs of either oxytocin nasal spray or an inactive placebo spray. For the first test, the men looked at pictures of their partner, a woman they'd never met, or a neutral picture, that of a house. The photos of the women were carefully matched, so one wasn't more attractive than the other. In the second experiment, they looked at pictures of their partners or of women they knew but weren't related to, perhaps someone they saw at work every day. Then the men rated the attraction they felt to the various faces. Men consistently rated their partners as being more attractive and arousing than the other women, and in most cases, a whiff of oxytocin boosted that effect compared to the placebo. But what really fascinated the researchers was what happened inside the men's brains. Under the influence of oxytocin, two areas of the brain responsible for feelings of reward and pleasure lit up when the men saw their partners' faces. But the sight of other women had the opposite effect, suppressing feelings of pleasure. So oxytocin triggered the reward system to activate on the partner's face the presence of the partner and not so much for the other faces. Interesting. So the point they're trying to make is that oxytocin seems to promote sexual monogamy, which perhaps biologically or evolutionarily speaking is actually quite costly for males. So there has to be some sort of mechanism binding males and females together, at least for some time. There must be some benefit and reward is actually the strongest motivation underlying human behavior. Hmm. An expert who was not involved in the study said the results suggest that couples who keep a high level of intimacy in their relationships can maintain stronger bonds. When you're first becoming intimate, you're releasing lots of dopamine and oxytocin. That's creating that link between the neural systems that are processing your facial cues, your voice, and the reward system of a partner's brain. As time goes on and couples become less intimate, that bond can decay. But activities that release oxytocin, such as looking into one another's eyes, holding hands, kissing, and having sex, may help restore the connection. Uh, this is Perhaps the only reason that we do hug and touch each other all the time. The study author thinks that this is the mechanism that keeps oxytocin levels high in relationships. Well, you know, it's certainly intriguing, and uh, I think this is not the first time that oxytocin has been proposed as the uh, love bonding hormone, to be sure, but... On the other hand, I don't know that just giving the men a sniff of inhaled oxytocin is 
and, and then showing them some pictures is enough to prove that link. An intriguing idea, uh, but you know, hopefully someone else who is interested to take a look at this will come up with somewhat uh, more elegant, more real-life methodology to take a look at the issue. Now, as a counterpart to that feel-good research, let's look at the other side to this issue. This next article poses the question, are men biologically doomed to cheat? I can just sense uh, a lot of the women's reactions to that, uh, listening to this. Well, why is it that men cheat? While no one is exempt from the feelings of temptation, men have the reputation of being more likely to cheat. Although this propensity for infidelity may be blamed on a lack of self-control, a new study says that it could also be that men simply have stronger sexual impulses. Researchers at the Department of Psychology at Texas A&M University discovered that men have stronger sexual impulses, while women have better self-control. However, when men practiced self-control, their impulses were reduced. It makes sense that self-control, which has relatively recent evolutionary origins compared to sexual impulses, would work similarly and as effectively for both men and women. Researchers performed two experiments. In the first one, they wanted to see how men and women reacted to real-life sexual temptations from their past. They studied 70 men and 148 women, asking them to describe a time when they were attracted to one of their exes or someone who was unavailable. Then they answered survey questions about that impulse including how they controlled it and any consequential behaviors. When men reported on their past sexual behavior, they reported experiencing relatively stronger impulses and acting on those impulses more than women did. In contrast, men and women both exerted the same amount of self-control. The second experiment involved showing photos of the opposite sex to 326 men and 274 women. The participants were asked to either accept or reject the potential partners in the photos. However, the photos were accompanied with tags that said either good for you or bad for you. The participants were asked to choose their partners based solely on the tags, and in some cases, they were asked to accept undesirable partners rather than desirable ones. They found that men were more likely to hesitate rejecting a desirable partner, and because of this the men performed worse on the experiment, therefore showing less uh, self-control. Although men have long been considered the cheating partner, women may be catching up. A survey by the National Opinion Research Center found that they were nearly 40% more likely to cheat in 2010 as they were in 1990. Hmm. So, uh, so far, if you take these last two articles that we discussed, it, it almost comes to mind that 
um, perhaps women should be walking around squirting oxytocin up their men's nose to prevent them from cheating. Sorry. Uh, an ill-advised attempt at humor. Now, one other relationship article that we can talk about, this has to do with the effect of alcoholism on relationships and divorce. Now, <clears throat> we know that alcoholism wreaks havocs on relationship uh, in general, uh, not just marital relationships, but family relationships. But this article talks about how heavy drinking can specifically lead to divorce unless both partners are equally alcoholic. Let's take a look at what they're talking about. Again, alcohol abuse can wreak havoc on a relationship and could ultimately lead to divorce. But a recent study founded, uh, sorry, funded rather by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, otherwise known as NIAAA, a marriage is more likely to dissolve if only one spouse is a heavy drinker as opposed to both. Researchers from the University at Buffalo Research Institute on Addictions determined that married couples that drink heavily are just as likely to stay together as married couples that don't drink. This research provides some solid evidence to bolster the commonplace notion that heavy drinking by one partner can lead to divorce. Although some people might think that's a likely outcome, there was surprisingly little data to back up that claim until now. They followed 634 couples over a nine-year period that began when they got married. Heavy drinkers consumed six or more drinks at one time or drank until they were intoxicated. Researchers included factors that could also contribute to marital dissatisfaction, such as depression, socioeconomic status, tobacco, and marijuana use. Well, let's take another commercial break at this point. When we come back, we'll finish up talking about the effects of alcoholism on divorce, and then we'll have more interesting mental health-related news when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott, right back after this break. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that dizziness may be a sign of heart disease, iron deficiency, high or low blood pressure, low blood sugar, or an inner ear infection? Dizziness can be, take the form of a spinning sensation, also known as vertigo, or a feeling of lightheadedness. The individual can also feel faint or have a rapid heartbeat. If you take high blood pressure medication, remember to take the medication daily as directed to control your blood pressure. 
Diabetics must remember to eat after taking their medication and to eat at regular intervals. If you have anemia, make sure to take a multivitamin that contains iron and to eat vegetables such as spinach. Dizziness after a cold or flu may be due to a virus. If you have dizziness, it is important to see your doctor for a complete physical examination. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about the effects of partners' alcoholism on rates of divorce. Now, let's take a closer look at the researchers' findings. Both heavy drinking couples and non-drinking couples yielded about a 30% divorce rate. But marriages in which only one spouse drank heavily, again, drinking heavily is six or more drinks in a day, or drinking until intoxicated, those ended in divorce much more often, 50% of the time. Researchers also noticed a higher rate of divorce in marriages with a heavy drinking wife, but warned that there wasn't enough, enough data to call that a significant find. Results indicate that it is the difference between the couple's drinking habits rather than the drinking itself that leads to marital dissatisfaction, separation, and divorce. Heavy drinking spouses may be more tolerant of negative experiences related to alcohol due to their own drinking habits. Although the researchers set out to establish the influence of heavy, that heavy drinking has on spousal satisfaction with marriage, the effect heavy drinking has on children was not studied. According to the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, 26.8 million children in the United States are exposed to alcoholism by their family, resulting in a higher risk of the child becoming alcoholic. While two heavy drinkers may not divorce, they may create a particularly bad climate for their children. I think that's an important point to make. Uh, it's interesting that they found that when a couple's drinking is sort of balanced, they're more likely to stay together. Um, not so reassuring to see that when they're both drinking too heavily, they're more likely to stay together than when only one or the other is. Also, there you have it, some relationship-related mental health news uh, right on the heels of Valentine's Day. Now let's um, move on to an article that gives us some very interesting insights into human behavior by studying the structure of the brain. Researchers may have actually located a brain region that accounts for the trait of human perseverance. A person's willingness to push through hard times and overcome obstacles may come from a small network of brain cells near the center of the brain, according to a new study. This network is located deep inside the front of the brain, close to the meeting point of the right and left hemispheres. It lies within a region called the anterior mid-cingulate cortex, 
This is an area known to be broadly involved in emotion, pain, and decision-making, particularly goal-oriented decisions, although the specifics of how it works remain unclear. Researchers at Stanford University have found this area of the brain seems to play an important role in what researchers call a person's willingness to persevere, which means striving toward a goal despite serious problems. They came across this finding by accident while delivering electrical charges to the brains of two people with epilepsy in an effort to locate the source of their seizures. It wasn't that they started out looking for this. It just so happened that both both of these patients had a similar reaction. When the researchers inserted electrode probes into the anterior mid-cingulate cortex of each patient and stimulated this region of their brains, the electric charge did not produce seizures, indicating that this region was healthy in both individuals. But the charges did raise the patient's heart rates slightly and induce mild hot flashes, a reaction not caused by stimulating other parts of the brain. When asked to describe their emotions during these electrical charges, both patients said they felt anxiety and worry, but emphasized that the emotions were not negative. Rather, they felt confident and motivated to tackle the problem at hand. For example, one patient reported feeling as if he were in a car heading toward a storm and needing to figure out how to escape. Neither patient felt such emotions when stimulated with a sham or a false shock without any voltage. Now, this research was published back in December in the journal Neuron. That's N-E-U-R-O-N. Now, researchers scanned the patient's brains using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. This is a type of MRI which reveals blood flow and activity in the brain as opposed to just a regular MRI, which just gives you a picture of the structure of the brain. They found that brain activity was heightened within a network that connects the anterior mid-cingulate cortex to other regions of the brain, suggesting that this region may be the root of such emotion. The new findings are, of course, extremely limited. They only looked at two patients. The emotion the patients described in the study is likely controlled by an interaction of brain regions that are connected to this area uh, of interest, the uh, anterior mid-cingulate cortex. The researchers feel these findings may help determine the root of apathy or unwillingness to persevere in people with certain psychological conditions, such as dementia, and could potentially help identify forms of medical or therapeutic treatment for these conditions. Now the team hopes to explore the uh, neuronal networks connected to this area to better pinpoint the root of the emotion they have described. Well, you know, this is fascinating stuff if you're into the brain and how it regulates behavior, such as I am myself, I have to admit. And uh, 
is actually a very long standing tradition that scientists have accidentally discovered uh, different things about different parts of the brain when stimulating them in the hopes of finding epilepsy uh, generating areas of the brain. Uh, as far back as the late 1950s, such experiments were done. Stimulating certain parts of the brain resulted in epilepsy patients uh, recalling bits of music, for example, or experiencing certain smells. So, um, so actually, uh, this is uh, certainly something that has happened before uh, many different times over the years. Again, just helps to show that Scientists are uh, learning more and more about human behavior and how it relates to specific structures in the brain. <clears throat> now, next up on tonight's show, a look at people who are prone to outbursts of rage. Turns out that certain blood proteins are higher in these folks. Recurrent, unwarranted blow-ups such as road rage may therefore have a biological basis. Blood tests of people who display these hostile outbursts that characterize a psychiatric illness known as intermittent explosive disorder uh, show signs of increased inflammation in their blood. Medication and th behavior therapy are used to treat intermittent explosive disorder, which affects about 16 million Americans, but these methods are effective in fewer than 50% of cases. So, the researchers want to see if anti-inflammatory medicines can reduce the unwanted aggression and the inflammation found in the blood of people with this disorder. It's important for them to seek treatment rather than expect loved ones and others to live with their episodes of unwarranted hostility. Uh, looking at inflammation and its link to aggressive behavior started back about a decade ago. Now, this new research, which was published back in December in Journal of the AMA Psychiatry is the first time to show that two indicators of inflammation are higher in intermittent explosive disorder patients than those with, than those with other psychiatric illnesses or those with good mental health. The body-wide inflammation also puts these people at risk for other medical problems like heart disease, stroke, and arthritis. It's not known if the inflammation triggers the aggression or if repeated acts of aggression lead to the inflammation. Although the two are linked, the study can't discern a cause and effect relationship. Initial controversy about whether intermittent explosive disorder is a real illness has subsided as more research has been done. Those diagnosed with the condition have episodes of impulsivity and aggression that are extremely out of proportion to the stressor. They lose control, breaking property, or trying to hurt people. For example, they might blow up at a store clerk for moving too slowly or making a minor mistake, but not just mumbling under their breath uh, or, or saying something. They really would lose control and make an agitated scene. In the study, researchers looked at levels of two types of indicators of inflammation in the blood, C-reactive protein and interleukin-6. Elevated levels of these two proteins have been linked with aggressive and impulsive behaviors in both people and animals. 
Nearly 200 people participated in the study. 69 had intermittent explosive disorder, 61 had psychiatric disorders not involving aggression, and 67 were in good mental health. The levels of chronic inflammation are about twice as great in intermittent explosive disorder compared with healthy subjects. The blood test to evaluate inflammation won't be a diagnostic test, however, because the disorder is diagnosed by observation and reports of behavior. This new study is interesting, even though it has no immediate clinical application. It's not possible to say whether the inflammation is contributing to the aggression or the other way around. But even if inflammation is eventually found to be a cause of this disorder, it won't lead to a simple solution. Behavior is influenced by a lot more than biology, and eliminating the cause of the disorder is not always enough to change the behavior once it's established. Clearly, uh, we hope that this will lead to some more clues as to helpful treatments. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope that you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you helpful and useful and informative and interesting. And I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.